Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff. I'm the host of the podcast, and I have with me in the studio today Dr. Joseph A. Pipa, Jr., our president and professor of systematic and homiletical theology. Dr. Pipa, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Zach. It's always good to be in here with you. Today we're doing something a little bit different. In the past, uh, we typically do our monthly faith and practice installment where I ask Dr. Piper questions. We're going to get back to that pretty soon. But in light of his imminent transition into uh, solely a faculty position and, and setting aside the presidential responsibilities, I figured we would take a little bit of a breather from the Q&A, and I would ask Dr. Piper to share with us his personal testimony and to hit on some of the high notes, what Ian Hamilton would probably call the principial notes of his pastoral ministry uh, as we prepare to uh, welcome Jonathan Master into our midst next year. And in fact, I do intend to do this with each of our faculty members in coming months. If you look back in the history of uh, Confessing Our Hope, you'll see that, or you'll notice rather, that I did... uh, a similar interview with Dr. Jim McGoldrick a couple of years ago in honor of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Of Reformation uh, or Dr. McGoldrick? <laughs> <laughs> of, of the Reformation, but we tied it into his personal testimony coming out of Romanism and into Protestantism. So anyway, without further ado, I, I want to begin diving into Dr. Piper's personal testimony. I've, I've had the privilege of hearing it in various settings and iterations and personal conversations on multiple occasions, and I'm excited for him to share with our audience today. Dr. Piper, why don't you get us started and, and share a little bit about your background and upbringing and then where you were first confronted with the gospel and, and your conversion narrative. Thank you, Zach. Always glad to talk about that. I was raised in a um, kind of Roman, superstitious Roman Catholic environment. My father was Roman Catholic. My mother wasn't, but had agreed for any children to be raised within the church. I went uh, three years to parochial school. Um, very zealous for it until I began well, to get into adolescence and began to have uh, questions and problems. And in about 1956, my father uh, committed adultery. My mother left him. Very earth-shaking. Uh, divorce was not common amongst the plebeians in those days. And, um, but, and, and part of the procedure was, and I don't know why, outside of God's providence, I don't know the human cause, but my mother had to move to Pensacola, Florida, where he was next going to be stationed. He was in the Navy to get a divorce. And so here's my life, a complete mess. And then we moved to uh, Pensacola. They divorced in 1957. Uh, And I was just in rebellion and turmoil. I began to get in trouble. I was uh, on probation with the juvenile authorities. And uh, actually, probably the days, weeks before I was converted, committed a really heinous sin and I'd been under conviction of sin and uh, God converted me at the uh, Pensacola Youth Crusade which went on every July and the conservative churches and the PCUS in those days all sent the young people there I still have friends from from those youth crusades so yeah, I was converted and uh, I don't know the people's name I look forward to seeing them in heaven but the 
they came to me, they were neighbors, and they said, we know what you did, but we also know that you've just been converted, which I don't know how they knew that, and so we're not going to do anything about it. If they had done something about it, I would have been probably sent off to whatever they called it in those days, reform school. Anyway, so God converted me right as I was starting high school, ninth grade. I see how God used that all of that mess in my life to bring me to Pensacola, to bring me to himself, to get me initially grounded uh, in uh, evangelicalism and introduced to the Reformed faith, uh, not in a consistent manner uh, in those days, but in a foundational manner, I would say. By my junior year in high school, I had a very subtle conviction that I was called to the ministry, and so I uh, set my course in that direction. And so I attended Bellhaven College, which again in those days was kind of the citadel for any conservative Southern Presbyterians, and then uh, was one of the earliest classes at Reformed Theological Seminary, where I had the privilege of not only studying under Dr. Smith, but being mentored by him. I went to seminary with two questions, uh, covenant baptism and the extent of the atonement. And by God's grace, those two questions were answered the first year. So I met my wife through my roommate, uh, she was, uh, is a native Mississippian. Uh, she was raised in the Southern Baptist Church, but God just opened her heart to love the Reformed faith and worship and the Sabbath. And we got married in 1971, the same summer I was ordained. Uh, at that point, I was pastoring in Chula, Mississippi, uh, which is in the Delta, about 70 miles northwest of Jackson, Mississippi. I had been doing some pulpit supply there my second year in seminary. They asked me to come in the summer as a student, which I did. God worked. There were some people who were converted. Uh, so they asked me to come as a student supply then for a year. Great. That, that's very helpful for getting a foundation for where you were coming from and, and bringing us all the way up to your seminary days and your first pastorate, you neglected to mention a, a crucial detail from your first year of seminary. It was not only where you had those theological questions settled, but you also began sporting a mustache, isn't it? Mm, a second year, I think. It was your second year? Yeah, I think it was my second year. So the stash has been around since the second year the of stash seminary. stash is uh, older than my children, older than my <laughs> marriage. And my stash actually has its own Twitter account, it does. Uh, says some really outrageous things. But I, I enjoy it when he does those things. He has a mi mind of his own. Obviously, I would never say such things. Uh, yeah, Dr. Piper is not involved in the, the Stash's account. Uh, neither am I. And, um, and to the best of our knowledge, we are not completely sure of who runs it, though we have our suspicions. Well, I've, I have heard that they pass it around so nobody can really be tagged. But <laughs> Yeah, yeah I mean, it's a team effort. Well, Dr. Piper. Going back to your early days at those Youth Crusades and Pensacola Theological Institute, who were some of the, the, the standout speakers that really impressed you as a youth, but even leading up to before you got to Belhaven? Oh, I don't know if I can remember that, because uh, some of them were after I was away at college and coming home in the summers for it. Well, you can mention the, them as well. Uh, Al Martin was uh, probably the most significant. Uh, Joel Niederhood. J.I. Packer, probably more influential, uh, maybe two things. One's the friendships that continued to develop. The, if you've read the history of the PCA, you recognize the Pensacola Institute, which I didn't really mention in my testimony, 
uh, was uh, very influential. Uh, a ruling elder, O.H. Smith, the father of Bill Smith, was kind of the guiding force behind this. It was always more consistently reformed than the church ministry was. Uh, but this was the magnet that people came to. And it was a great kind of vacation because you, you what you did, you had... Uh, Lord's Day services and then morning activities, afternoons on the beach. Most of the people got beach cottages and then evening uh, services. And they would do a week-long week deal, right? Sunday through Sunday, Lord's Day through Lord's Day. So they've recently um, renewed the, the Pensacola Theological Institute in partnership with the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. And the pastors there, uh, Rob and Lewis, have... Uh, have formatted it over a weekend at this right. point. Uh, I mean, week-long conferences don't usually get as much traction nowadays as they used to, but they're doing it every other year, and I try to get down there to represent Greenville Seminary uh, for a number of reasons, because of the importance in Dr. Piper's personal testimony, but also because it's hosted at McElwain Presbyterian Church, where Dr. Piper was discipled in those early years. Rob had me down there to uh, preach a weekend conference uh, and part of that was the plan. Let's see how this goes, because we're thinking about trying to renew the uh, the institute. So the friendships. The other thing, though, is I have books in my library that I started buying in high school. I think that's when I got uh, Packer's Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, for example. So, yeah, th those were uh, important years. I wasn't really mentored personally by individuals. I kind of developed my life out of books, uh, and that's just how God led me. But uh, after this summer in Chula, I didn't want to go to Chula. I mean, this was a culturally about as opposite of a place as a person could be. I was a beach person. I had longer hair. Uh, and I had very distinctly different racial views than the culture in Holmes County. Uh, but it was a, it was a strange marriage. Uh, it's, it's, it's glorious. They called me then, even after there was the first group had left the church because of my views. Uh, the church still called me. Um, had a, uh, some others leave the church. Uh, but in God's providence, uh, two of the men that left the church were converted and came back and became my best friends. I trained them as elders. Just a few years ago, one died. Other one I usually see at least once a year. Um, and so the first three years in Chula were miserable um, because of the, the tensions, the splits, uh, and then the Spirit just began to uh, operate. I, that's why I encourage men, you, you don't, don't bail out. You know, it's, uh, uh, so the last three, three and a half years were quite a wonderful time. What was the crux of the conflict? What, you, you, said, you said because of racial views, and then, of course, there's some cultural disparity just between yourself as a Pensacola beach bum yeah. versus uh, I walked up cotton town. farmers in uh, I walked up town Chula. one time in cutoffs and barefoot. <laughs> Scandalized the entire town. Because you're I the Presbyterian thought, preacher walking around in cutoffs They walk around in barefoot. blue jeans and cowboy boots. So I thought that was pretty casual. So. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, uh, in those days then, after that scandal, I wore a coat and tie, even though my study was in the house, I wore a coat and tie every day I was in the study because I wanted people to know that I was at work just as the banker or the lawyer or the school teacher uh, was at work. And 
I would get up at six o'clock in the morning. I mean, a lot of the men didn't want my being there, but and go eat breakfast with the farmers when I was still single, so that they would know that I was up working when they were up working. So I developed a number of of, of habits in those days that um, I I've kept ever since. So yeah, you bridged the cultural divide on that score and accommodated yourself. Um, what about the conflicts in other so areas? So the other areas was. Um, the one thing was I didn't make divisions in public. So if I met a, an African-American in the post office, particularly if it was an older gentleman, I'd shake his hand and I would address him as sir. In the hearts of some people, that was scandalous. Not a lot now. And not people in my church. So you, you had the culture, the broader culture, then you had the people in the church. Now some had left, but, but that was because I was emphasizing indeed to uh, start evangelizing uh, the, the blacks in the community on the farms and with the goal of trying to start a, a, a African-American Presbyterian church. Because at that point, there was no way that the um, African-American community could have come to our church and understood the sermons. There was such a huge difference. In educational levels. Well, not just, but in, in biblical education. Not just in education, but in any grasp of, of Scripture. Uh, but that have had something to do with literacy in general or biblical did. literacy and that particular? was we were trying to teach one of the young tractor drivers to read who had a high school diploma hmm. uh, but what did happen in that process is that uh, some women came to our elders they didn't come to me, they went to the elders and asked if I could start doing services for them some women from the lo- a local black congregation yes yeah. because in those days uh, none of the uh, African-American congregations had full-time pastors in, in these smaller towns. And so the pastor would come once or twice a month. So they, some of them had cooked at a camp I ran for the presbytery. Others had been at funerals I'd done. And they saw the difference. And so they came and asked if I could start holding services for them on the two Sundays they didn't have a pastor. When you say they saw the difference, you mean they picked up on the fact that your sermons were thoroughly scriptural in content and Very different from the emotional stuff they were getting on the Lord's Day. Okay. Yeah. And they wanted something better. So the elders agreed, and I started doing that. Basically, I would take the sermons that I would preach into my congregation and simply uh, try to make them uh, really... Uh, not in a condescending way, but just to meet those people where they were. I, I actually read a couple of books on black preaching as well. Um, and the Lord blessed greatly. Now, that we were meeting in the Black Baptist Church uh, until that preacher got jealous and we got kicked out of that. So but this is an interesting part of the story. The first Lord's Day I was there, but when I left, they gave me a brown paper bag. So I got to the house and it was it was full of cash. So I called uh, one of my closest friends, a ruling elder who really understood the African American community. I said, "John Edgar, what's going on here?" He says, "Oh, son," he said, uh, "On the day of preaching, the offering goes to the preacher, all of it. And the days I don't have preaching, that's to go to run the church and stuff like that." So I went back two weeks later. We were doing this every two weeks, and I uh, I said, "You know, I appreciate it. Labor is worthy as hire." But my church is paying me to do this, and I'd rather you didn't do this every time. In fact, I think you should save the money because you might have to rent a place for us to, because the, the goal was actually to move toward a church. 
Well, sure enough, the, we got kicked out of that Black Baptist Church, and these ladies took the money then that they'd been collecting and offering and started renting a daycare center where we met then for the rest of the time uh, that I was, uh, I was there. And it was, it was a grand time. Um, after the sermon, then we would sit and have uh, coffee and cookies and talk about the sermon to be sure they understood uh, what I was saying. And it was actually African-American politics that broke that work up as the two sides of the community got opposed on stuff in the city council and all that and um, destroyed it after I'd left. When you say African-American politics broke up that, that, that gathering that was moving toward a church, there were ladies within the congregation that were on opposing sides of the political issues in yeah, the Yeah, one of them, uh, a dear friend, in fact, she, I was, a few years ago I was doing a Bible conference at, at the old church and she came, sat down beside me and uh, I was doing it with one of our graduates, Josh Martin, and she whispered, said, is Dr. Piper here? <laughs> and I said, Miss Banks, do you not recognize me? So she came and then uh, she came back afterwards with the group for the, the fellowship time in between. This is just how God was blessing. So you had lasting friendships with, the, with these folks to whom you were ministering, even, even on the periphery of your, right. your main call there in Chula. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and, and since then, for example, one lady that uh, left the church because I said we needed to evangelize the blacks later. Uh, one lady who left Chula, right, the, left the, the PCA church, church came here, to me or PCUS church. and said, uh, um, asked me if I knew a certain African-American PCA pastor. I said, I did. And her next words out of her mouth, and she'd gone to the white flight church. Next words out of her mouth was, he preached our pastor's ordination. And the next words were, and if I lived in Jackson, I'd go to his church. Now, see, that's what the gospel does. And that's what people today, I think, need to uh, understand and get their priorities right. Well, anyway, the last year and a half in Chula, I began to get pressure from some friends to go do doctoral studies. I didn't want to do doctoral studies. I just wanted to pastor in Chula, Mississippi the rest of my life. But we prayed about it, got pressed. I got a job with Great Commission Publications and accepted at Westminster Seminary. So we were there for about three years. In Philadelphia. In Philadelphia. Uh, and I started teaching adjunct at that time, pastoral theology course, and actually worked with uh, some pretty prominent OPC guys now on preaching, Tony Curto, uh, amongst others. And so then um, I wanted to stay in Philadelphia. I had, a, I had a, a job that was flexible enough, and I'd be able to write my dissertation, but the Lord moved us to Houston, Texas. So after three years in Philly, where I not only did my doctoral studies, but began to teach some at a seminary level. We went to Houston, pastored there for 10 and a half years. Church went from about 75 to 150 and transferred out another 200 or so in the oil patch. It was, there's a lot of turnover there, but it's built by God's grace, a very good uh, ministry, out of which three other churches were planted, one in Houston, one in uh, Nacogdoches, and one in Beaumont, all which are thriving uh, today as well. But toward the end of the ten and a half years, the Lord was beginning to move. I had at, went up, gave a lecture at Westminster Philly. Then I was actually invited to interview at Covenant Seminary. Um, and at the end of that time, uh, Bob Godfrey, who was teaching church history, wasn't president of, of Westminster, California at that point, asked me if I would consider coming and taking Jay Adams' place and running the program and preaching. And interestingly, a little side note, you didn't get into all the different places where your dad was stationed in your childhood, 
But Escondido, Escondido was actually one of the places that you had lived for a short time as a boy while your dad was stationed out there with the Navy. And then you were making And a my daughter return. for my 45th or 50th found, found the house and got pictures of it. And then we, we went to see it as, as well. So, yeah, that was an interesting time in my life. Uh, family life was always miserable. I had a fifth grade teacher, though, in Escondido that um, just was a, a male model. Um, he also took me to... Uh, uh, when you say male model, you mean a role model yeah. to you? Yeah. Took me uh, and some other of the students up to uh, Pasadena to one of the great USC football games. And when I you say Bob USC, Hope, you University mean... University of... of the, not the real USC, the University yeah. of Southern California. <laughs> <laughs> the real USC, University of South Carolina. That's right. Just so anyway... So we went out there then in uh, the summer of uh, uh, 1990. Well, before we get there, tell us a little bit more about the ministry in Houston. Uh, that's where you forged a relationship with John Perkins, is it not? Yes. Uh, I had read some of Perkins' works and went to the elders, and I said I think it would be very important. Uh, for those that wouldn't know, Perkins uh, had a fantastic ministry in Mississippi and Mendehall. Um, soteriologically pretty sound guy uh, and really th had thought through a lot of the social uh, conflict issues so uh, he came and did uh, a series for us on those things very well attended um, and I would say at that point although I've not seen him in years that we became friends so yeah that that was good of course and we had a being in Houston you, you get a lot more cultural diversity than you would have in Mississippi and so we had uh, a diverse membership in the church uh, there as well. We got to build a building that won all kinds of architectural awards, built around reform principles of worship. Uh, and so that was, a, in, in many ways, uh, Houston was a hard city to live in because of time consumption and going places. It would take us uh, the last couple of years, maybe an hour to get our children, 45 minutes an hour to get them to their school we were always in a Christian school, and then could, in the afternoon, do it in 20 minutes. And pastoral visitation was difficult, especially before the plants were established. Right. And so I was I visited everybody annually and trained the elders to do that as well. Uh, God bless that. Um, we had a lot of young professionals uh, converted or really come back to walk with Christ. We had one young guy that he was very good tennis player. He'd meet all these people at tennis clubs, and he'd bring me all of his, um, uh, like a dog, bring it home, beraggle things. And so <laughs> a lot of conversions, a lot of, of marriages then of young couples uh, come to the Reformed faith. Uh, so it was, a, it was a very busy time in our life. Our, we, our kids, when we went there, our, uh, Sarah was six and Joey was four. Um, so we were there for 10 and a half years. They more or less grew up there, but um, a lot of close friends there as well. And now one of our graduates, Lou Vega, is pastoring that church. And he's the clerk of the presbytery. And he's clerk of the presbytery. Interestingly, uh, by doing this in Houston, we developed what I think is a very good strategy for church planting. In fact, the, the last of the churches that we planted was a denominational um, seeker-sensitive church plant in Beaumont. The, the guy that was there gave up, left, recommended closing the thing down. And a group of people came to our session and said, we know you've started churches. Um, would you take this over? 
So we say, if you go back to being um, a mission group, and here's the things that we will require, um, yes. Now a Greenville grad is there. Uh, other two men, interning to me, are in the other two churches, and uh, yeah, that's glorious. It's 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 really great. You know, it, we're gonna about to make a shift here to Escondido and talk about your your seminary career in Westminster West, and then ultimately here at Greenville. But before we do, what were if you had to pick out three to five principal notes of your pastoral ministry briefly, just state them. What what would it have been drawing out of out of Chula? Consecutive and expository preaching, which I started day one, had not been taught it uh, by God's grace. I had three adopted models: Al Martin, uh, John R. Stott, and Martin Lloyd Jones. Uh, faithful pastoral visitation in the home, and then discipleship mentoring. Yeah, yeah, very good. And uh, a great resource in discipleship is Dr. Piper's commentary or, or study guide through the Westminster Confession of Faith. We carry that here at Greenville Which Seminary. Which came out of my whole burden about discipleship. All right, great. Well, moving on to, uh, in our remaining time, talk a little bit about your experiences at Westminster West and well, we got to, also When we got to Greenville. California, I was, all I was supposed to do was run the DMIN program, but then they asked if I would also teach on the MDiv level. So I said, I'll teach you anything. <laughs> I think I don't remember how many in those seven and a half years, how many new courses I prepared. Somebody go on sabbatical, I would teach. I taught systematics for Strimple, church history for Godfrey. I taught uh, preaching. I taught, <laughs> taught evangelism. And everyone was new preparation. But that was good for me. Um, and early on there, I had some people come to me who uh, knew my views on worship somehow and asked if I would start a PCA church. The one that was there was a bit more innovative. And so I uh, went to the, that pastor and the Presbyterian. Everybody was behind that. So we also, I took a third job, uh, and that was uh, starting a church. When you say some people approached you, were those seminary students or people in the community or what? People mostly connected with the seminary at that point. Now we eventually were able to see a number of people from the community come as well. So... That gave me another seven years of past. So I have 22 years of pastoral experience by doing that when we were there. Eventually, at one point, I think I had 17 interns that I was meeting with regularly and mentoring them uh, as well. But that was good, although I went through some real spiritual tests in those days uh, that I can say that uh, with, I stumbled but didn't didn't fall. Um, so that. Looking back, that was good uh, as well. Um, so the church was a good experience. Eventually, one of the interns, who was a ruling elder, then became the associate pastor. Another two of the of the ruling elders are pastors now. One in the PCA in Florida, one in the OPC in North Carolina. Uh, again, all close uh, friends. In fact, it's interesting. When, a year after we left. That church uh, folded, uh, had continual church discipline problems. That's probably the nature of trying to have a spiritual church in California. And there was one couple in in particular, the lady wanted to divorce her husband. We kept telling her that she had no biblical grounds to divorce her husband. And then we had another case. We'd excommunicated a girl in her maybe her late teens because of uh, horrendous uh, sexual activity which she admitted to, we didn't have to have a trial. She said, yes, I've done all these things, and I'm not going to repent. Um, 
excommunicated her. At that point, her family was 100% behind it, but after I left, they changed and decided that uh, we weren't fair. It was way past the statute of limitations, but they went to the Presbytery, and the Presbytery leaned on the church to restore her. So you got that happening. This other woman by that felt emboldened to go ahead with her divorce, and that simply finished shattering uh, the church. That's so sad. Which was hard, but on the other hand, uh, the one thing I see that God did out of that, there are a lot of men now, conservative Reformed pastors that came through uh, that ministry in that church, and that was evidently God's purpose for it. So I ran the D-Men program in preaching, uh, which also was good for me. That's where I was able to really develop the curriculum for homiletics that we use here now and the curriculum for worship uh, that we use here now. And so it was, it was good. It was one thing to be a preacher, uh, it's something else begin to become reflective about preaching. And some men can't do one or the other. I think I can do both a little bit. And so uh, it was good in, in that way. The other thing that was good for me there was having to do academic administration, academic administration. Because when the call came from here to be the first president of Greenville Seminary, that was a very big need. And I would have known nothing about academic administration if I would not been running an academic program. And so I can see how God, you know, in all the various preparations, because when I first came here, I also was teaching lots of different things. Uh, Tell us about the, that earth-moving call. The, the, who, who called you? Was it a member of the board? Dr. Was Knight, Dr. who was Knight. actually the big architect behind this. Um, and I, I, frankly, I guess I was really the only candidate that was seriously considered, although there were some objections to me, just people's apprehension and whatever, but it was unanimous from the board. He reached out to me about my interest, and his involvement was very much an encouragement to me because I knew he understood that side of things, the academic administration. And of course, Dr. Smith's involvement, a spiritual father, um, and the opportunity to work uh, with him for the last uh, almost 18 years then of his public ministry as well. So, uh, yeah, we prayed about it because I was pastoring a church, took it to the elders and asked them if they thought I should go. And they unanimously thought that I should go as well. As well. So we left there uh, in, uh, I left there uh, December of 97, started here January 1st, 98. And uh, we've been here now for uh, be 22 years this December 30th, 31st. It's a remarkable tenure. We're thankful a lot more for. than I expected. Mm -hmm. How did you build on the work that had already been done here uh, by the board and by the men who were teaching here at Greenville Seminary? What things, what strengths did you did you encounter when you got here that you built on? And then what things did, did you maybe make improvements on or, or shift uh, gears a little bit for? Well, confessionally, uh, the, the strengths were very good, and, and Dr. Smith's courses laid the foundation for that. At that time, Dr. Singer was still teaching uh, some church history, and then uh, Dr. Johnson, who now teaches at uh, Erskine, I think, uh, was an adjunct in church history. So uh, those two, and then uh, Dr. Shaw and Dr. Dyer were here, uh, again, very committed to the concept of Greenville that we want men to graduate really able to read Greek and Hebrew. Uh, and that was the core of the faculty. And then um, there was a person here that was teaching 
uh, homiletics. So actually, I got to do a D-minute homiletics under me as I was wrapping up the program in California. What we didn't have, though, was a campus life at that point. We were in a cramped facility. So one of my first, actually before uh, I moved here in January, I was flying over once a month to look for properties. Um, and we found the uh, Independent Baptist Church property that we moved into then that August of 98, just as school uh, was starting. You know, developed an academic structure, a uh, handbooks and stuff like that, and policies. Uh, and then um, one of my goals then was to work with the board to bring in really uh, confessional, experimental Calvinist. And God gave us, I mean, we had the, we had the core of men and, and Mr. Dr. Uh, Patterson and Mr. Van Voris, uh, uh, some of those ruling elders uh, from here in uh, Greenville. Uh, Lig Duncan was initially, uh, was on the board until he died. He was one of the men that started the seminary. In fact, when I came over to interview, Mrs. Duncan, whom I greatly cherish, said, Joey, this was a day that Lig would have loved. He always wanted you here. <laughs> that was quite encouraging. Did he know you before? Yeah, we've met done through the assembly, and and um, I'd come over and spoken uh, for one or two things that they'd had, uh, and so and then of course Doctor Knight. So there was a, there obviously was a core there of of men that shared the vision, and we've been able now to see God develop a board that is uh, remarkable in terms of the ownership, the wisdom, the leadership that they give to the seminary. And they have particularly given excellent leadership in this whole transition uh, process as well. So I'm very thankful. I think that that's, again, one of the things. And of course, this building that God has given to us, which we really need to get something much more permanent than we were in. And uh, Lord willing, uh, this January, then we will have paid off the mortgage on it as well. So in your time here at Greenville Seminary since 98 to today, or I guess if you just go back to the beginning of the seminary to today, we've graduated or the school's graduated something on the order of 250 or 260. I would think close to 300. Yeah, maybe closer to 300 graduates, 240 or 50 of which are, are in some form of ordained ministry in the local church, either as ruling elders or teaching elders. Um, I, I think not mostly, but about 45% in the PCA then 25% in the OPC and other denominations um, at lower percentages uh, beyond that. But just reflecting on how the Lord has, uh, has so abundantly blessed the seminary under your leadership, I, I think that um, we can really give praise to God for bringing you here and for the time that you've spent here and, and see clearly how your experiences, all maybe not at the moment while you were in the midst of it all, could you have guess where the Lord was taking you, but they right. all feed into yes, they do. The, the program that we have here with emphases on pastoral care, preaching the word in, in, in spiritual power, and then also being active in the courts of the church. That's one element of your public ministry we didn't really touch on a whole lot is your involvement in the formation of the PCA, bringing Chula into the PCA, and then also um, your involvement in the courts of the church since then. But you're currently moderator of Calvary Presbytery of the PCA this year. Your term's about to wrap up at the end of the year. And um, and I think uh, most people who watch General Assembly know who you are and know what it looks like to see Joey Piper going to the microphone with a Bible in hand. So 
I, I think that that's another uh, testament to uh, You know, Zach, one of the things that I really thank the Lord for amongst many is the statistics today are that most seminary graduates, 50% are out of the ministry in three to five years. I can say that it's probably 90% of our graduates are still in the ministry from the 20 years. Uh, a few have gone to glory, but uh, we've only a handful, you know, that either were preparing and didn't get a call, that's very rare, or um, they've been ordained, are not still in the ministry. And that's just, uh, I think part of that gets into our whole front end policy of trying to get a man in his session to determine if he's really called to the ministry before he comes, because guys go with unrealistic expectations and it doesn't take but about half a year in a pastorate to get all those dashed so i'm thankful that our men are are finishing well that's right well dr piper i think you got to get to class i but do this has I been a very hour with you though well i wholeheartedly agree and my goal is or my aim for the podcast is in a series of podcast episodes to bring in each of our faculty members and to ask them about their personal testimonies, their ministries, uh, what has been um, a particular emphasis for them in the pulpit and in the classroom. As we close the podcast, I do want to remind our listeners that this particular program only exists because of the generous support of listeners like you, those who appreciate what Greenville Seminary is about, what we're doing in Reformed denominations around the world to equip men to be preachers, pastors, and churchmen for an enduring reformation in Christ's kingdom and in Christ's church. Uh, Though we are not the church, we do seek to serve the church, and I hope that was made abundantly clear in this episode where we discuss Dr. Piper's life and ministry in the principal notes of his ministry and how those things are reflected now in the life of Greenville Seminary. So if you would, please visit gpts.edu for news and updates about the seminary, and also visit gpts.edu slash donate to make a gift to Greenville Seminary as part of our year-end campaign where we anticipate bringing in 25% of our overall revenues for the entire year. Thank you again for listening, and have a blessed day.